Tonight I'm going to start in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. The scripture says this, it says, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto Him. Now this is talking about the rapture of the church. Okay, that's what it's referring to. It's talking about the, the coming of Jesus and our gathering to Him. So he's talking about end time events, the last days. It says that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come except there come a falling away first and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Now, the church is talking about, it's talking about the rapture of the church coming, but we understand that the church today seems to be distracted and, in fact, uh, seems to be deceived. Verse 3 of that, of that passage we just read, the Apostle Paul said, Let no man deceive you by any means. Let no man deceive you. Jesus, when he was talking about the last days, they said, tell us about the last days. The first thing Jesus said was, don't let anybody deceive you. Be not deceived, is what Jesus said. So we understand that one of the telltale signs of the end times is deception. That's always been the way the devil has worked. He always has deceived people. From the Garden of Eden, he's deceived. He, he uses deception. All right, so he, he deceives. And the word, the word deceive here literally means to seduce holy. It's talking about it's talking about somebody in their mind not thinking right, not thinking the same way. The devil works through seduction and deception. He works through thoughts and he works through imaginations. He wants to bring to everyone in this room thoughts that contradict what the Word of God says. That's what he's after. He wants you to believe something that's not true. Deception is used as a distraction. In the world today, the deception that the devil is using is to distract the church and make it unavailable to fight a spiritual fight that's necessary for revival and for the restoration of this nation back to God. He wants us to be so distracted by his deception that when it's time to fight, we will do nothing. It says in these last times that a man of sin will be revealed. Literally, it says a man of lawlessness. I don't know how much news you read, but I read this week about a, a mob of young people storming into a convenience store in Philadelphia, I believe it was, ransacked it and took what they wanted and left and there's nothing to be done about it. I saw where a, a, lady, a young lady was kicked and beaten and wound up with broken ribs and uh, some problem with her liver and was stabbed, all that in a public subway station in New York City. Lawlessness. Lawlessness is rampant in our nation. It's rampant. I mean, there's lawlessness. The Bible says that there's coming a time for a man of lawlessness to come. Things that we're seeing, some of you are too young to realize this, but 50 years ago, these things couldn't have taken place because of what this nation was in, in those times, and, and Christianity had too much say-so. But the society has, is becoming more and more lawless, and the purpose of that, um, the devil's had this plan in place so that it will be possible for a lawless leader to take his place. And it won't be a big deal to a lot of people because he's, he's been preparing society for it. The scripture talks about in that last day that there will be a falling away. We need to understand 
there is a falling away going on right now. People are falling away. There are big old churches out there all over, but people are falling away from the foundational truth of the Scripture. They're falling away from what is right, and they're beginning to believe lies about theology, not even theology, about Jesus, and thinking that, well, I can get to heaven by Jesus. They can go by Buddha. They can do this. And, there, and all, this, all these things are going on. There's a falling away. There's no foundation in, in, in the lives of many Christians today. And so we're going to talk about that maybe later on. Let me read this passage of Scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. Perilous times. The word perilous means fierce, dangerous, furious. I think we can identify a little bit with the times in which we live. The Scripture goes on to say, For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good. Isn't that something? Despisers of those that are good. I mean, never have I ever seen where what is good is called bad as much as it is today. And what is bad is being called good. We see it all over. It's, just, it's, it's a sign of the times. Trady, tra traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Our culture is all about lovers of pleasure. I mean, I don't know. We want things as fast as we can get it. We used to say, well, I don't have all day. Now we say, I don't have all minute because we want it now. We want, we want our, our pleasure to be taken care of right away, instant gratification. And then it says in verse 5, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. From such, turn away. Now that last verse, he's talking about church people, talking about churches that have a form of godliness but deny the power of God. Deny who he really is. Denying it. He said, turn away from them. Okay, so in, in light of what we read from that other passage, the time of lawlessness is drawing near. These are the last days he's talking about. But he's referring to the church in verse 5. He talks about, he talks about denying the power of, of God, denying the power of the Holy Spirit. Last week we, we, we heard a term and it was said, it was the corporate church. That's what Lisa defined it as last week. And I thought it was a very good definition. It seems like the corporate church is more concerned about the business of church than about the business of the Holy Spirit. And it's grown that way for a long time. Yeah. It's grown where it's more and more about the crowd, more and more about the entertainment, more about those types of things. And so what's happened is over time, the corporate church has grown lukewarm. It's actually grown cold regarding the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God because the culture is making a demand on the church to operate a certain way and to look a certain way to draw a certain crowd. It seems as if the church is distracted and almost unaware that there's a spiritual fight that needs to be fought. Many Christians don't even know there is a fight to fight. They don't know there's a spiritual enemy that wants to silence the church in these times. Wants to, wants to silence her. It wants to, it wants to cut off the message of the church and wants the church to preach the message of the culture. The culture wants to cancel the word of truth. Wants to cancel the message of life. 
The church is being distracted. I don't know if you realize this or not, but it's being distracted by preachers that are persuaded that leaving the Bible, Bible out of their messages is the best way to draw the crowd. In fact, some of them brag about how much they don't use the Bible anymore. It's the best way to get a crowd in the building. They tell stories. They give illustrations, but never teach the Word of God. Never preach what the Bible actually has to say. They don't, they don't, they don't do that anymore. And yet the Bible says it's the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. The Word has to be taught, has to be preached. James chapter 1, verse 21 tells us that the Word... The Word of God is able or has the supernatural ability to save our souls. It's the Word that does that, not the story about my fishing trip last week. With some weird moral at the end of it. True rescue from the curse of the world is found in the Word of God. People want to be, want, they don't, people's ears, they're drawing to themselves preachers with itching ears because they, they, they don't want to hear the truth of the Word. I heard someone say not too long ago, well, yeah, but we're tired of hearing the Bible at church. What? Well, I just want, I just want to know how to have a good marriage. I don't, want to know, I don't want to hear the Bible. What? The Bible tells us how to have a good marriage. It tells us how to raise children. It tells us, it tells us how to live a life. The scripture has the life of God. The church is distracted. It's distracted by, by, by everything that needs to fit into this cultural relevance and being all about the felt needs and of the Christian and my, the felt need of this Christian and that Christian. And no longer is it about the Christ, the commander, the Lord God Almighty. It's not always all about me. I don't know if you realize that or not. When I got saved and when you got saved, I hope you got saved for the same reason I did. I got saved... <laughs> Because without Jesus, I was going to hell, and Jesus became Lord of my life. And Christianity is about Jesus. It's only about Jesus. Everything comes behind that. The church is distracted by what I call the worship of worship. I can't tell you how many times over the past several years that I've heard someone say something like this, and if it was you, I apologize. I just love to go and just sing the songs and worship because it makes me feel so good. Worship is not about you. It's about the one we're worshiping. It's all about Him. has to be about Him. Yeah, I might feel good and I might be happy. It might make me glad. Worship is about the King. And we come to worship Him. It's not the worship of worship. Sadly, in, in churches today all over this country, especially this country, the show is of the utmost importance. The flashier, the more feely it is, the more people it may draw. It's all about that. Listen, they don't even care today if the songs agree with the Word of God or not. Have you ever listened to the words of the songs we sing? Be a good time to start. The church is distracted by the need to get the people in and get them out. So we can get the next crowd in and get them out. We've made a choice to choose the crowd rather than the Holy Spirit. We've made a choice to, to, to not give Him place, not allow Him to do 
what he needs to do. Listen, I know I'm older than most of you. There ought to be time for him. How long has it been since you've been in a church service where there was a tongue and interpretation of that tongue? I'm going to tell you something. Modern pastors are terrified of the thought of that one. How long has it been since you were in the service when they said, get up and walk, and the man stood up out of the wheelchair? How long has it been? Has it ever been? Is there time to do it? I know I'm probably stepping on toes, but that's just where we are. That's where we are. You're not wrong when you leave church and there's a troubling in your spirit. That's not wrong. You know there has to be more than a show. Has to be more than just some theatrics. Has to be more. There's something empty about hearing sermons about how to get past your microaggressions and that you're okay just the way you are. Jesus will accept you just the way you are, but he will not leave you the way you are. He won't lead you to stay that way. Man, you know, you were filled with the Holy Spirit and the fire of the Spirit of God filled your very being. And that fire is burning. Like, Jeremiah said, it's like fire shut up in my bones. And you know there's more to this Christian life than just sitting in a pew or on a chair and doing nothing but watching the show. Watching the Christian show is one of the most frustrating things in the world to me. You know you know that the voice of the Spirit is saying, there's more here. I have something for you. I, I'm calling you to rise to another place. I've heard this story for many, many years since I've been a Christian. And I heard a story about a farmer who went out. I was just talking about preachers telling stories, but this story is going to mean something, I promise. The farmer went out, and he was out in, the, out in the barn, out in the farm area, and he found this big old egg. He thought, I wonder what that would be. So he took the egg into the hen house and he let his hen sit on it so she could uh, nurture it so it could hatch. And so after a while, finally this big old egg hatches and it was the ugliest looking chicken you had ever seen in your life. It was ugly. And the chicken was bigger than the other chickens, but he was uglier than the other chickens. He was ugly, always the ugliest chicken. And he would get around with the chickens. He'd scratch the ground and peck out food from the dirt and the poop and he would do it but there was just something that wasn't right about that he was there and it just wasn't right every day they'd throw out the grain you'd scratch the ground you'd peck out the, the food and it, it just wasn't right the chickens had wings they didn't fly they had feathers and they just walked around and they scratched the dirt he got bigger and he got bigger and he got bigger and then one day as he's in the barnyard scratching out the food he hears a screech in the air and it was a sound that permeated his very being. He identified with that sound. He looked up, and it was an eagle soaring in the, cl in the clouds. He spread out his wings, and he took off 
and his sword. You hear that sound from the Spirit, and you know it's his sound. It's time to quit scratching the dirt. It's time to fly with the eagles. The apostle said to turn away from this godliness that has no power. It's time to fly the coop and soar with his power in the time in which we live. The scripture says this. It says, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. This is the eighth message in this series we're talking about, fighting a fight of faith. When I hear verses like that, it reaffirms the knowing on the inside of me that there's more to do than just sit, more to do than just watch, and more to do than just play at the Christian religion. Understanding tonight there's a difference between the Christian religion and Christianity. Those are two different things. We understand there's still a fight to fight. This nation needs to revert back to God again. The church needs to come alive. There needs to be the power of the Holy Spirit. There needs to be a revival in our land. There's a fight to fight. We mustn't be deceived and we must refuse to be distracted from our purpose on the earth. We talked last time about how that we are ambassadors for the king. And that our job is to spread his kingdom throughout the earth. That job will never end in our lives. We are his. We are his. And until he calls us home, we have a job here to do. And there's a fight to fight. The devil does not want you to do anything. He wants you to sit in the circle and sing Kumbaya and do nothing else. There's a fight to fight. We're ambassadors. This fight has to do with laying hold and refusing to let go of eternal truths and eternal realities of the Word. It has to do with our confession. That's what the verse said. And we must agree with what the Word says no matter what the circumstances may be, no matter what the culture may think. We must stand and do what God called us to do and refuse the do-nothing Christianity. The fight is our fight, not somebody else's fight, not the preacher's fight. It's our fight. We have been brought into the kingdom for such a time as this. I'm telling you, it is so dark in the world. We ought to be the most excited people on the planet because of the light that should be shining through us, the difference we have the opportunity to make. The scripture says, for though we walk in the flesh, in 2 Corinthians 10, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. Our fight is not a flesh fight. Our fight is not an answer fight. You don't have to know the answers to fight the fight. It's not a flesh fight. It's not an answer fight. It's not a fist fight. So for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, not fleshy, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. It's our fight to fight. We must fight it. It's not in the flesh, but we are equipped. We are empowered to fight this fight. And if we'll do it the way we're supposed to do, it's a fight that we'll win. We'll win the fight. The fight is about this. He said, he said, the weapons are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. It defines the strongholds as casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. The fight is about what people think and what people believe. 
The devil is trying to get you to think wrong. So you'll believe wrong. So you'll do nothing. See, his, he, he wanted you never to get born again. He, he really didn't want you to get born again. And that really made him mad. Now that you're born again, what he wants you to do is nothing for the rest of your life. We've been duped somehow into thinking that the whole thing is about getting born again. No, no. The whole thing is about expanding the kingdom of God. If all this was about was getting saved and getting to go to heaven, why don't we just hold them in the water for a long time at baptism? And then just go right on to heaven and we don't have to think about it anymore. <laughs> there's more to do than that. There's, there, there's a fight to fight. There's a fight to fight. It's about our thoughts. It's about imaginations. The culture that we live in wants to control what you think. They want to control what you imagine. They want to control what you say and how you say it. Creating new words with new definitions about sin that don't exactly sound as bad as the sin really is. To control how you think. They want to control the conversation. I read an article about the university that said that, that it was, they were the most, uh, most opposed to free speech. It was Cambridge University of any university in the country. And they said, well, we think everybody should be able to say what they want as long as it's not hate speech. <laughs> and they, really, they felt like they could define hate speech. Control the conversation and you win. See, we fight thoughts and imaginations and we fight them with words that agree with the Word of God. We fight them in prayer. We fight them not with people. We're not, it's not against flesh and blood. But we, we, we take the Word and we make sure we, that is what we say. And that's what we say. Last time we talked about a need for power for the fight. So tonight we're going to talk a little bit more about that. I want you to understand our enemy. There's, there's a fight to fight. Our enemy is organized and he is determined. We must in this fight at least match his commitment if we're going to win. We need to outdo his commitment because of our, of our weapons. So we read these, these verses last time out of Ephesians <coughs> excuse me, chapter 6, beginning of verse 10. The Apostle Paul says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord, in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against, not the power, but the wiles of the devil, the deceits, the tricks of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand." So we began looking at this last week. When he says the word finally, it's not the conclusion necessarily. In Greek, in Greek literature, when this, this particular Greek word, we defined it last week, it talked about saving the very most important thing you want to say in the whole letter, the whole play, the whole book, to the very end, because you want to leave the audience remembering this very thing. The Apostle Paul is saying, in view of, even though I've said all these other things, if, if you remember anything I've said, this is what I want you to remember the very most. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. He's talking about putting on this strength, being strong in the Lord because of a fight. He says, take unto you the whole armor of God. The phrase take unto literally means to take or receive 
again. We talked last week about how this church at Ephesus had laid down their armor. Had la- they lost this, their, their first love for God. They lost it, and they weren't even fighting anymore. They laid down their armor, and they'd basically become captives. We talked about how you've got to be strong enough to put on the weaponry. The Roman soldier, who he compared all this armor to, wore about 88 pounds of weapons. That's a lot to haul around and then to move and to fight and do all the things. You've got to be in shape to do that. So he's, ta- he's, he's comparing the fight to the Roman soldier fight that we can't just be weak little Christian Christians, weak, Christian weaklings, I guess. Christianettes is what I call them. We can't just be that. We've got to be people who are powerful in the Lord. All right? The passage begins with the need for power, the need for strength. Then it talks about standing against some things. And it talks about the enemy that we must stand against as it talks about the armor. And then it concludes with standing. Here's the thing. If we'll stand against some things now, when it's all said and done, we'll still be standing. And that's the goal. In the end of the fight, we're going to be the ones standing if we understand what we're supposed to do. He's talking about the need to stand, to be victorious. So we've got to learn. We've got to hear the word, be taught the word so we know what we're supposed to do. In verse 12, he talks about Satan's kingdom and his, how it's aligned militarily. If we're going to win a fight, we need to not be deceived by the enemy, but we also, wouldn't it be cool if we had his plans? If we have his plans, that'll help us a whole lot. I mean, just ask the New England Patriots when they spied on the other team before the Super Bowl. I can't remember which one it was. It's probably all of them. But it gives you an advantage if you know what their plan is. So the apostle here is giving us an idea of what's going on. He's shown us that this kingdom's military is highly organized. He didn't get it himself. He learned it when he was in heaven. Remember, he was the archangel, Lucifer. He, he saw that there, were, there, was, there was an organization in heaven. Even the angels are organized. There are archangels and seraphim and cherubim and all those things. He understood there had to be some kind of organization. If you're going to fight somebody, you need to have a plan. So he, he, he talks about the organization of this, of this army. He calls the first groups principalities. Now what in the world would that be? A principality. The Greek word here is arche. It means a general or the chief. It has to do with something that is from the very beginning, something very ancient. It refers to the highest and most exalted positions of power, principalities. When you read the Septuagint Bible, the word that's used for principalities here is used in the Old Testament, and it talks of the highest rulers. These are the highest, the highest enemy forces right here. Principalities is what they're called, according to the Apostle Paul. All right. In Daniel 10, it speaks of these high ruling spirits. Remember the story Daniel prayed and fasted for 21 days. Remember that? I mean, 21, it, we, we do a Daniel fast at church, and most of you have done Daniel fast. For 21 days, Daniel fasts and prays. And after 21 days, this angel comes. Do you know why he came? I'll give you the definition why he came. He said to Daniel, I've come because of your words. See, we don't understand sometimes how important our words are, especially when we're praying. The angel came. The scripture says the angels hearken unto the voice of his word. 
it's, it's talking about His Word coming out of my mouth. They do what the Word says to do. And so he, Daniel says, he says to Daniel, I've come because of your words. Your words. When you pray, you don't pray, oh God, please help me, help me, help me, help me, help me. No, you've got to have words that agree with His Word. Word, the Word of God. The Word of God is what it takes. And this, this angel came because he was moved at the Word. Now here's my question. Why would it take an angel 21 days to get there? Don't angels like move at the spirit, speed of light? They move so fast you can't see them. Operating in the earth. Why would it take an angel 21 days? Here he is. Daniel is praying. He's interceding. He's asking about a vision. And he's praying. And the angel said, I started coming the day you started praying. But I had to fight the spirit of Persia. Or he called him the prince of Persia. The word prince there in the, in the Septuagint is the same as the word in the Septuagint for principalities. The word of the New Testament. He said, he said, I came the minute you started, but I had to fight the spirit, the prince of Persia. In fact, this battle was pretty tough because he had to get Michael, the archangel, to fight with him. He had to confront this prince. 21 days of fighting to finally get to Daniel. Let me talk about this for just a minute. When you read the book of Daniel, you're going to find that Daniel did not fight the prince of Persia. This was not a, a fight that he was involved in. That's a relief, right? The scripture never has anyone fighting one of these principalities. You can't find one human being in the Bible that fought a principality. Remember, we said in the very beginning of this series, if it's not in the scripture... It can't be scriptural. That ought to be kind of a relief for some of us. Now, even though I've been in lots of prayer meetings where, you know, we were fighting the Prince of Persia or whoever we were fighting. <laughs> Daniel's job was to intercede. Daniel's job was to pray the word. The angelic help came because of Daniel's words. And that's how the Prince of Persia was driven back. This is good stuff right here. In other words, this is a very high-level realm of beings, high-level angelic realm. In fact, when he said, now I'm going to go back, it's going to take me some time to get back because I'm going to fight this prince of Persia again, and I'm going to fight the prince of Greece. So these seem to be, these, of course they're not flesh and blood, but, but they seem to be spirits that rule over whole regions. I mean, they're, 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 the, they're, the, they're the devil's big guys. But God has big guys that are bigger than the devil's big guys, just so you know that. And the biggest one, his name is Jesus. And he humiliated them. But, but these are spirits. They've, they've ruled over regions for generations. The Middle East still does not have peace. Why? Because of these spirits that rule over the regions. Bullets don't stop spirits. Bazookas don't stop spirits. Tanks don't stop them. 
There has to be something else that happens. And it's when the people of God will begin to pray the word of God. Believing the word of God. That's, that's where the fight takes place for us. And then angelic help can come and do what's supposed to be done. Ooh, this is good, isn't it? See, all of a sudden now, you don't have to move the Prince of Persia. You just have to get on your face before God. I'm not talking about a formula here. I'm talking about we just we do what we're supposed to do. Okay, they're not flesh and blood. So they're principalities. The next group are called powers. The Greek word here is the Greek word exousia. Exousia is used in, in the Gospel of Luke when Jesus says, Behold, I give you power over all the power of the enemy. The word is exousia, not, not dunamis, and it actually means I give, you, um, I give you authority. It literally means delegated authority. And so this is talking about exousia are these spirits that are delegate, have delegated authority. They're not, as, they're not as big and tough as the principalities, but they also are pretty big in the spirit. Okay, they're, 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 they're like a colonel in the army instead of the general. They're lower spirits. They seem to operate in more of a local area than a regional area, maybe over a city or, or over uh, a county or something like that. They're smaller. They're beneath the principalities. Below them, then, are this group called the rulers of the darkness of this world. Now, listen about these guys. The Greek word here is, is uh, kosmokrator. It comes from two Greek words, cosmos, which means orderly arrangements, and krateo, which means raw power. So what this word literally means is power that has been arranged, power that has been ordered. The devil has this group of spirits that they have, they're, they're power and they're arranged is what he's talking about. Classical writers use this very Greek word to describe a boot camp for training, a boot camp. Now, I've not been in the military, Doug, but when you go to boot camp, they have a lot of, from what I know, they have a lot of powerful people that come, but they're not arranged. And they've got to train them and arrange them so that they can be a force that can do something for the benefit of the army. Isn't that right? So they, they arrange the power. So this is talking about a group of, of spirits that have come. I don't know when that happened, but they come and they were they were arranged. They were trained for combat, trained for specific things. These are specific demons, specific forces that have specific jobs and they do specific things so they can bring darkness to the minds of people because of the rulers of the darkness of this world. These are the ones that we get to fight personally. I mean, have you ever been around someone who has a generational curse? A spirit is designed specifically trained for this family to bring this curse to this family and when he's done with this daddy he goes to this son and when he's done with that one he goes to this grandson and it goes because he's he's trained that's the way he's been trained specifically to do that i mean trained for these purposes generational curses spirits of infirmity spirits of divorce i mean i don't know if you some people their their whole family they've never had anyone in their family that hadn't had a divorce because these spirits are specifically designed to attack them, specifically for them. Spirits of, 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 that cause people to become confused about their identity. Familiar spirits, soul-tying spirits, spirits, things that pa are passed from person to person. These spirits, man, they're the ones that, that are tearing up families. They're the ones who are blinding the minds of people. 
See, those big guys, the principalities, are, are, are feeding lies to leaders of regions. And then the others come behind them, the powers, feeding lies to smaller, smaller areas. And then these guys are coming. They bring blindness to individuals, to families. They bring blindness. Here's the good news. In Jesus, we have authority to stop these spirits. Jesus said, in my name, you will cast out devils. Believers, we're believers, we have the authority to cast out these demons. These spirits can be stopped from transmitting these curses to generations. And I know because I'm an example of one. I told you the story. I mean, I have a whole lineage of people in my family that have a whole lineage of problems that thank God I've been delivered and haven't had to deal with them. Because God is good. Satan is serious about what he's doing. I mean, his attack against the church, against you, it's not some willy-nilly, if you can do something, do something. No, he is organized. He's focused on how and when he attacks. If these demons, this group here, if they had a, a motto, it would be to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's who Jesus is talking about. He said, the thief comes only in order to steal, to kill, and destroy. I am come that they may have life and enjoy it and have it in abundance to the full till it overflows. That's what Jesus brings to us. These are trying to, the word, uh, it's interesting, when Jesus used the word steal, the word the thief and the word steal are the same Greek word pr primarily. The Greek word is klepto. You've heard the word kleptomaniac. It, 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 it has a picture of a pickpocket, someone who steals so artfully that he could steal from you and you would never know he took anything. It has to do with pilfering, taking a little bit at a time and you never know it. The devil wants to steal. He's a thief. He wants to steal. If he came to you outright and said, I'm the devil, I'm here to steal from you, you would probably put up a defense. But if he can take a little bit at a time, if he can get a little bit of your joy right now, a little bit of it later, a little here, a little there, soon you have no joy and you don't even know what happened to it. That's what they come to do. They come in thoughts. They come in all these ways just to try to get to you a little at a time. They want to steal. The word kleptomaniac comes from that. It talks about a person who has a persistent neurotic impulse to steal. They just steal for the fun of it. That's what the devil wants to do. He wants to steal from you. To kill. The word kill doesn't mean to cause you not to be alive anymore. The Greek word has to do with, with sacrifice, to surrender, to give up something that is precious as a sacrifice. If the devil can't steal it from you, he still can't bear the fact that you might have some blessing from God. And so he wants to somehow get it away from you. And so what he does is he tries to convince you to give it up of your own accord. Just surrender, to sacrifice it, to give it. I mean, he may do it through circumstances that are stressful and all those types of things, but that's what he wants to do. He wants to give it away. The word destroy, it literally means to make it become rotten. He, if he can't steal it, if he can't, if he can't cause you to give it up, he wants, to, he wants to just make it so rotten you don't want it anymore. And so the devil wants to come and make your life miserable, but we have authority over those spirits. Then it talks about spiritual wickedness in high places. That's not another group. This is talking about the dispatchment of those spirits. The last group we just read, talked about. 
It says spiritual wickedness. The word wickedness is the Greek word poneria. It describes something that is absolutely wicked and wants to destroy everything around it. It says these are dispatched into high places. Now, what does that mean? Spiritual wickedness in high places. I've heard it taught. This means like the moon and and the stars and the atmosphere, and that these must be the highest ones. No, 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 that's not what the word even means. Why would the devil need to be on the moon? I mean, nobody there to, to harass. Why would he need to be in the outer space unless he's going after the astronauts and the cosmonauts? I, no, that's not what he's talking about. The word, the word here, it, it literally, the word high places, the Greek word is eros, and it literally means the air we breathe or the environment in which we live, it literally talks about being lower than the mountaintops. These are dispatched into our environment. That's where they are. And that's why we can fight them in this realm. Okay, we can cast out demons in this realm. I mean, just think about this. The devil has been working for so long, so long, to prepare a society, as we said earlier, that a lawless leader can come to the forefront. He's been working for, 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 for centuries. I mean, he's waiting for it to happen. The culture's being prepared for lawlessness because people don't know who the enemy is. They don't know what they're fighting. They don't know what, they don't know what they're supposed to be doing. I mean, they, they, they don't know. Christians today don't know doctrine. In fact, we understand that today in the United States of America, only 64% of our population uh, confess to be Christians. It's like, yay, we're winning. No, no. In 1990, 90% confessed that we were Christians. And the number is dwindling and dwindling. By, 19, by 2035, supposedly, if we don't have revival, if we don't have something take place, the Christians will be in the major, minority in this country. And they're not going to Buddhism. They're not going to other things. They just become agnostic. They don't believe in anything. But of that 64% of, of, of Americans who claim to be Christians, less than half of them believe that Jesus is the way to God. And they believe that you can get to God in lots of ways. And so, so even though they claim that way, it's, it's, it's not really that way. The, the, the society is being prepared. The devil has worked cunningly for decades and decades. When I was in elementary school, that was a long time ago, they said to me, I may have come from a monkey. They don't say may anymore. Over the decades, now they say you did come from a monkey. You see, he's been preparing us, preparing us. He's had this long-term plan. He says we wrestle not. The word wrestle is, a, is an interesting word. If he'd have said football, everybody knows what football is. Even if you don't like football. Even if you've never been a fan of football, you know what it is. You know, as Tammy says, those guys come out in those costumes and they you know, run against each other. And uh, in fact, when we first were married, she picked her favorite teams based on their costumes and whatever their colors were. And that's how she chose them. She didn't understand that stars are in the heavenly and that's why when the star was on their helmet, they had to be from God. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but if they said, if they said, if, if, if he had said football, we, we'd know what he's talking about. But he said, we wrestle not. The word wrestle in the Greek is an interesting word. The word is, is, is pale. Pale. It comes from another word called palestra. And the palestra was an athletic facility. It literally was the, the house of combat or the house of struggle. And in this palestra, they had three sports. 
One was boxing. And boxing wasn't like our boxing, where they have the soft little gloves and, you know, they punch around each other. No, no boxing in those days, the boxers, at the, end of, at the end of their knuckles here, they had nails sticking out of the gloves. Well, so they could just rip the, rip the person to shreds. The biggest rule in boxing in those days, you fought until one person was dead or so maimed that they couldn't get back up. It was a, it was a brutal sport. I mean, they, in fact, if you look at the vases of the day, if they ever depict pictures of, of athletes and they have boxers on them, you find the boxers most often don't have a nose or don't have an ear because they got ripped off while they were boxing. So that was one sport. Then the other sport was wrestling. Wrestling was a sport that had no rules. You could gouge out their eyes. You could break their back, break their fingers, rip their arm off if you could do that. I mean, there were no rules. The only rule in wrestling was the one who can stand in the end wins. That was the rule. And then they had this sport called uh, pancration, which was everything. They would use weapons. They could, uh, again, they would, the, the, the goal was to kill the other person. And people would go into the palestra to watch these sports. And they loved them. Now, when he said that, when he said wrestle, the people of his world, Paul's world, understood what he was talking about. They knew it wasn't patty cake wrestling. It wasn't just wrestle till the guy taps you on the shoulder and gets up and lets you stay there. I mean, and, and, and lets you get back up. No, they understood it was a fierce fight and it was all or nothing. And they understood that when he said that. I mean, no one, no one would enter a fight in the palestra without being in shape to fight. I mean, you wouldn't sit on the couch eating pizza for nine weeks and then go fight a fight there. You would be in shape. You'd be prepared to fight the foe. He's making a point here that you're going to have to put, have this strength from God and you have to be ready to fight. He says, we fight, we wrestle not against, against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of the world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. He used the word against four times. I mean, linguistically, he just had to use it once, but he used it four times. He's saying it to because he wants to drive home a point. And when he uses the word against, he doesn't use the Greek word anti, which would be normally what we say for against, but the Greek word pros. Pros. That word is used in John 1.1 1, 1 when it says in the, beginning, in, the beginning was, in the beginning was the word, and the word was pros, God, with God. The word literally means face to face. In John 1.1, 1, 1, it's talking about the intimacy of the Godhead, but here, he's, he's talking about, you have to get in the face of the enemy. Face to face. Shoulder to shoulder. Rib cage to rib cage. He's saying, you're going to have to fight them. And these people understood what he's talking about, because in Ephesus in those days, I mean, they had the temple of Aramis, the temple of Seraphis, and all these were wicked, wicked, demonic places. Human sacrifices were. There was darkness everywhere. And these Christians were in church there. And so, so he, he, was, he was telling them, you're going to have to be ready to fight. And yet many Christians today aren't really ready to fight. We don't have pagan temples, but the devil just kind of passed by the temple. And so today he's striking pagan tenants into the hearts of the American people. Sadly, into the hearts of Christian people. 
I mean, there's a generation where we're, th we're thinking that one God is as good as another. There are lots of ways to heaven. There's lawlessness, and we're okay with that. Not all of us are okay with it. But this enemy is organized, and so we must be prepared to fight. So what does that mean to us? What is it talking about? Well, we live here. We're in the world. We're not of the world, but we have to know that we have power and we have armor to stand against what the devil is trying to do. When it says, when it says, it says, it says withstand, it means to repel. To withstand in the evil, a repel. We can repel the devil, repel what he wants to do. Listen, the devil can do what he wants to anywhere out in the world, but in our house, he doesn't have that right. In our family, he doesn't have that right. We can withstand him. We can repel him. He has no right to operate where Jesus is Lord. And we have the right to stand against him. We repel him. It says, it says to withstand him in the evil day. When is the evil day? You know, you're looking at the prophetic calendar. When is the evil day? Well, the evil day is not a specific day on the prophetic calendar. It's a day when evil is present. That could be the day you get a bad report from the doctor. It could be the day you get a bad report about your child or your grandchild. I mean, and you don't know how to fight it, then you're in trouble. You've got to learn how to fight in the evil day. If we all have this take-it-easy Christian life, we're not going to be very good at fighting. If we never hear how to fight, we won't be able to do that. But here's what I like about this whole thing. It says, and after you've done all that, stand. Isn't that something? Now, it almost sounds like he's saying, now, if you do all that and the Word doesn't work, and you do all that, and, 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 and nothing seems to go right, and you prayed, and it doesn't work, well, you stand anyway. Just, you take it like a man. Well, if the devil's whipping you, why stand there and get whipped some more? That's not what it's talking about. The Greek tense describes a finished action. After you've done everything, he's saying, after you've finished, stand. It's basically like God is taking a picture of you at the end and showing you your future. He's saying, when you've done all that, and you fight the way you're supposed to fight, you'll be the one standing. Because you did it the right way. You were standing. You'll be the one standing like David was standing over Goliath with that big old sword and Goliath's head was separated from his body because you'll win and you'll be the one standing. We're the ones who are supposed to win this fight. That's what the armor's for. That's what the word is for. When this is all said and done, we will be standing if we do it the right way. Let's pray. Father, tonight we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege we have to fight the good fight of faith. We thank you that it's your fight, and we fight it the way you call us to fight it. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your promise tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.